0: How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community, perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. So with a whole heap of background noise still going on behind me because I'm ensconced in life at a summer camp, today I'm talking with Luke Larson from Green Mountain Timber Frames. So I was first introduced to this clear-thinking, gentle-speaking, earnest soul who celebrates the magic of a simple existence in Vermont, USA, via a mutual friend. All three of us share a deep appreciation for skills of the lost arts and Luke takes the skill of being a true timberman to a whole other level and this is something that rings true to my heart because I've got family members who believe that they are on this earth to be timber people too and so when I heard Luke's incredibly eloquent poetic words about his discovery of his love of timber, I thought here's a conversation that will be a beautiful one um, that leans right into everything that future studying stands for and is regenerative from the absolute roots up. Luke, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Jade. I'm so excited for this conversation.
0: I know, I'm so delighted we've managed to make it happen. So Luke hosted a future-steading event in his breathtakingly beautiful reconstructed barn, not far from where I am right now in Vermont, but about six weeks ago and the idea for us to chat online was floated and I had hoped dearly that we would make it happen while we were still in the same time zone. And here we are. Um, I've just explained that you have a love of timber, but I would love to hear in your words, how you think that that first seeped into your psyche and you knew so clearly that this was the way you wanted to live your life.
1: Yeah, so I'm just so blessed. I I grew up on a dairy farm here in Vermont um, and my grandfather and grandmother lived about approximately a mile through the woods as the crow flies. So uh, in between barn chores, at a pretty early age, I was able to hike through the woods and cross one little brook. And I would arrive at my, the back door of my grandfather's little wood shop. Um, and in there, he, uh, he would always be working on something, very often repairs of furniture for us or he'd be puttering at fixing up an old bicycle for one of his grandkids, or he'd be making something like a little table or a bench. Um, so some of my earliest sort of woodworking memories are of, kind of walking in his door to that smell of the wood shop and uh, grandpa, or Papa, as I called him, would show me what he was doing. And I would often just kind of lean on a workbench and watch him as he, as he built something. So that was really one of my, my earliest um, opportunities to start learning about woodworking. Um, and the other thing that I didn't realize until recently was maybe really suc- significant is I would go out in the woods just with a, a jackknife, a carving knife. And at that time, I had a puppy or a dog later as he grew older, and I grew a little older. And I would sit on a log and just whittle. Um, and sometimes I would find a kind of a half-rotten piece of wood and whittle that And I loved just seeing the grain of the wood, kind of especially those pieces that were spelted or partially rotted. um, To try to, I was just fascinated by learning about the the nature of these little pieces of wood that we would just my dog and I would find on the forest floor. Um, So then later, I was I was really fortunate, and both my father and grandfather encouraged the interest in woodworking. Um, And then at the age of sixteen, I had an incredible opportunity where a family friend actually hired me to build a, a little timber frame cabin in the woods. Um, so I was trained by by Larry and then his friend and another mutual friend, uh, Dan, who uh, was a, a master timber framer. So that was my first experience. And I loved timber framing so much that the very next summer I went to work for Dan with his timber framing business. Um, and I just developed And it was a little bit later, a few years later, in fact, um, really after I went through college. And for a while, I thought I was going to travel the world and do all kinds of things. And then at the end of four years and uh, starting to look at graduate schools, I decided I really just wanted to come back to my roots in Vermont and pursue this passion of woodworking. Um, So Jade, later on, I got really interested in, um, in studying and taking down old buildings. The old barns that are just all over the landscape in Vermont, um, and so many of them have disappeared already and are continuing to, because of the lifestyle changes um, and kind of the move away from small family farms in Vermont, and I'm, I'm afraid many places. So my passion now is really to find these old buildings that are often on their last legs, literally on their last post, often um, <laughs> before the. Uh, before they fall over and are kind of swallowed back into the earth. And my incredible team and I will will, uh, take the barn down and we label everything, we label every board. We separate the timber joints and label all of that. We restore it at our shop and then we put them up somewhere um, to have a a second lifespan.
0: So this work is slow. It's um, painstakingly particular. It's really highly skilled, nuanced in the skills that are required and somehow or other you have had, had the gentle, charismatic way of pulling together a team of like-minded, connected souls who are willing to push back on everything that society tries to tell us we should be doing and have the confidence to come together as a, an incredible team that salvages Things from another time and and gives them new life. I think that in itself is incredible because y- you are gently spoken and you know I've tried to, to have the conversation about luring you to Australia and maybe tapping into some of those earlier desires to travel the world, but you are so committed to this slow and um, old world skill that I just I think it's um, it's worth honouring.
1: Well, thank you. I I am just so incredibly blessed and grateful for the, the team that's gonna come together um, to restore these old beams, old barns. Um, it really truly feels like family. We we share a lot of meals together. Um, we do travel around New England a bit when there's a barn that needs to be taken down somewhere. We'll be living together sometimes for a week at a time as a team. and. Uh, have lots of opportunity for great conversations and to to learn from each other. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for the the team and that there's so many people interested in, in saving these old buildings, but really Jade, more importantly than that, it's uh, a team that's interested, um, with my wife, Sarah and I, in trying to remember and listen to these old barns and the stories that they can tell us. So remember the, the connectedness of, Traditional farming methods to the land and to the community. Um, so that's you know I do love timber frame joints. I geek out about a really special way of connecting two timbers. Um, I get ridiculously excited if I find a barn that is unique in its style. But much more than that, what what really catches my passion is learning the stories that these barns can tell. Um, you know, we've we've taken down and restored barns dating back to 1690 and up to about about 1900. So quite a span, um, and it's just amazing to me, to me to think, first of all, of the of the people doing that woodworking, that crafting with hand tools. And I want to talk more about hand tools at some point here. But um, those first generations that built these barns. Um, and then all of the generations of people and animals, uh, and critters of every type, insects, wild animals, domestic animals that have had generations within the walls of these barns. Um, and if we listen and look carefully at these old pieces of wood, they just are so full of stories, um. One of my favorite types of barn here in New England are corn cribs or corn barns.
0: Is that and what they your were... little house was? Yes, yeah. I'm
1: so fortunate. We uh, we have one an old corn crib from the 1800s, erected here behind our shop in the woods, and it's just an incredible retreat.
0: Um, oh yeah, it is. <laughs> I had the pleasure of looking at it right on dusk, and I honestly felt like I was in a story t- a storybook. <laughs>
1: That's uh, those are the, that's the most peaceful place that, that I love to go mm. and spend time. But um, even that corn crib is an example. If we look carefully around at the boards on the walls and some of the beams, we, we see these faint inscriptions that were scratched into the wall. Um, and it's very often counting methods. So a couple of spots, there'll be all these hatch marks and then a cross that means it's a unit of five and so on and so forth. Um, other barns will actually find the date um, of a harvest, and it won't, wow. they might say, you know, eight bushels of of wheat put away on such and such a date, or uh, so many uh, barrels of corn on the cob stowed away for the for the winter. So it's stories like that that just.
0: I was just going to say, not quite so cryptically. I remember Sarah telling me a story about one building that you pulled down. It may even be your own corn crib that has gone back up again as your small home um, where you found the all the paperwork and all the accounting documents of a particular yes. business
1: yeah that was amazing. It was a, a small building that had been a general store in the 1800s and when it when I purchased it it was in quite badly in disrepair um, it was beginning to fall down but tucked away in one corner we found the old ledger book one of the old ledger books that was from 1860, you know, the 1870s, there were three years worth. Um, and it just gave me chills to read through it. Um, you know, we could see on say April 14th, 1878, so-and-so came in and bought, bought three dozen eggs and a quarter pound of sugar. And it's just such a window into, into the past, into a different lifestyle. Um, and then, you know, we could also see the accounting and whose count was perhaps starting to get up a little high. Um,
0: he was given a little more leniency.
1: Exactly, a little more leniency. And then it was fascinating, too, um, to look at it seasonally with these three years of records. And we could see when it was leading up to the, to the winter holidays, and we'd start to see the sales of flour and sugar climb. And yeah. Eggs. So we just, it was yeah. amazing to think, okay, these okay. families were walking down to the corner store and you know starting to do some holiday cooking um, mm-hmm. getting ready for the winter ritual or, or a christmas ritual um, so it's stories like that and then jade there's stories that come up much more recently of more recent generations um, i'm so incredibly lucky that i get these phone calls or emails and it will be someone um, usually in vermont but all over new england who has this barn on their property that they they just are not able to keep up anymore or have no use for. Um, So I will end up on their doorstep uh, enjoying their hospitality as they walk me through the barn. That's very often been in their family for generations. Um, And I get to hear these stories of growing up in the barn. One of my favorites is I I got to sit down with um, incredibly wonderful and beautiful woman who was 104 and she had grown up on this farm and climbing around within this barn uh, you know and she told me oh of i think it was one of my siblings fell off the hayloft there and broke an arm so there was that was one of the negative stories but so many positive stories and and then uh i've heard several stories including this woman who told me about her father getting the first farm motorized vehicle Um, i think in that case it was a tractor and starting to drive the tractor in the big barn doors, which were built for horses, and uh, her father forgetting in that moment that he was on a motorized vehicle and not a horse, and yelling "Whoa, whoa!" and then hitting the <laughs> barn wall because <laughs> the tractor didn't stop. <laughs>
0: so uh, I just I feel so fortunate. The evolution to, of humans.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. To hear these stories, uh, and they're so personal. I remember another another one. Um, I was standing with quite an elderly gentleman in a small barn, that had room in it for about four cows and he was telling me about growing up in the. this would have been the early 1900s and his father would be out there in the dark in the cool colder weather milking you know early early morning and the gentleman I was talking with would go out in the dark early morning to join his father and he had trouble sliding this giant barn door open and so uh, he, he pointed to the door as we're standing there this little cutout of a child-sized door cut right into the giant sliding door and he told me about his father one day making a small door so that he could get in and out more easily (sighs) and join his (laughs) join his father
0: oh what a beautiful legacy how incredible that you get the honor of people um offering you the opportunity to bring it back to life because they realize that they haven't got capacity to do that anymore i was before we get on to hand tools which i know is something very close to your heart i want to have a conversation with you about your childhood and i haven't really talked to you about this before but i did have the uh the pleasure of having a very fleeting conversation with sarah about it because i said to sarah are they all this self-assured and this clear in what their gift to the world is and what their talent is and she said they really are there's quite a few of you aren't there
1: there are. I am one of eight. Of okay, seven and I siblings. met your
0: incredible mother who is not only an organic dairy farmer but also a homeschooler of eight of you and then I imagine yes. a whole tribe of grandkids as well and you're all incredibly close. Yeah. Do you think um, the seeds that have made you who you are were sown deeply as a child or do you think that you've sort of meandered along your merry way to form your sense of identity and your sense of love of the world, or is it a combination of the two? Oh, uh,
1: I have zero doubt in my mind that uh, the seeds for the lifestyle that I aspire to were planted by my incredible parents. Um, they are incredibly thoughtful um, individuals who have just, as long back as I can remember, they've been constantly learning and trying to inspire their children to learn explore new ideas, um, and engage with the world actively. So they are definitely my inspiration. Um, we had huge gardens when I was growing up. Uh, you know, I remember speaking of, you know, harking back to that story, I just told you about the father making a door for his son. I remember so clearly my parents, when I was old enough, uh, teaching me how to feed the calves on the farm. So that, that sticks out in my mind, I knew I had arrived when I was old enough to uh, <laughs> go down and feed the calves by myself.
0: And were these potty calves that you fed from buckets?
1: Uh, yeah. Or, or by hand with a bottle. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, we
0: refer, do you um, refer to them as potties?
1: No, no.
0: What an intriguing I, term. I need to look up where that term even comes from. <laughs> so, we're, yeah, we're, the bucket feeding or the bottle feeding of uh, cows were okay. always called potties in our world. Oh,
1: that's interesting. I never heard that. Are they still dairy farming, your parents? They are. So when I, was, when I was young, there were quite a lot of cows on the farm um, and the model has shifted a lot. Uh, my parents now have a, a smaller herd of incredible jerseys. Mm-hmm. Um, each has its name. They're cared for so incredibly well and with organic practices. Um, and then my parents have also uh, created their own small creamery.
0: Wow. So and on, on with, site an process Yes. Really. So,
1: along with some of my siblings, um, they make yogurt incredible yogurt, maple yogurt, which oh. is my favorite. Wow. Uh, but as well and
0: as do g- they tap the maples themselves?
1: Uh yes, we have over the years done large and small amounts of tapping the trees um, I, that was one of my favorite spring rituals growing up yeah um and so they also have chickens, all kinds of wonderfully cared for animals um and their farm is still just this it's a community center it's amazing the amount of activity there at all times
0: oh,
1: yeah. um, it's it's an open table place so, uh They're incredibly inspiring. I can imagine
0: your mother uh, well and truly having an open table. She is a very large character, isn't she? She has a huge heart and um, a very solid inner strength to her. I haven't met your dad, but I have met your mum, and she was quite mind-blowing. I I can only imagine the kinds of uh, conversations that she encouraged you to inquire about as kids.
1: Right, right. So my parents are there, and so many people in my community I know all over the world are just so incredibly dedicated to providing sustainable and nutritious food for their community mm-hmm. um you know at really at great personal cost much of the time yes um <gasps> and yes. that's not what's the main focus of my life right now but i do i feel so privileged to kind of look backwards and get to experience you know all what used to be all these small small sustainable farms throughout the landscape mm-hmm. um, by looking at the stories that these barns and the barns people tell.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to hand tools because I had the pleasure okay. of watching you give us a riving demonstration. I didn't even know what the word meant, but watching you work with them mm-hmm. and watching your innate Uh, An intuitive understanding of how to manipulate and work with the wood was really something to be seen. It was was a beautiful Mm -hmm. presentation and I came away thinking, wow, if only all of us could find whatever that small something was that that gave us an ability to lean right into our intuition and and really hear what the bigger world is telling us, then we would all perhaps be happier in our society. Mm -hmm. I want you to talk a little bit about your love of hand tools.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, my love of hand tools, I guess, goes back to um, what's maybe the, the bigger or more important conversation, which is the nature of wood, mm-hmm. um, of trees themselves. Um, and I've, I've done reading and been around some incredible craftspeople and studied at the feet of craftspeople who lived 200 years ago uh, mm-hmm. like, as I restored their yes. work. Um, Timber framing and hand tool working is really about understanding the special gift of each tree, of each type of tree and wood, um, trying to understand how it grows, how the growth rings come together um, so that you can understand how to work with that material rather than trying to force it and conform it to a certain shape. Um, That's one of the things that I love about timber framing. And I guess I should stop and just say, at its very basic, timber framing is taking multiple pieces of wood and creating joints that are wood-based. So you're using the material itself um, and then connecting it with a wooden dowel or wooden peg or trunnion, tree nail. There's so many names for it. And it's a way of building a structure with completely natural wood, wood itself, rather than trying to use nails, um, you know, big steel brackets to attach these timbers together. So right from the get-go, Timber Frame is about understanding the way that trees will shrink and expand, the way that they'll dry out over time. Um, it's literally a moving creature for 2, 3, four, 500 years after you put it together, because the nature of that wood is to shrink and expand with the seasons. Um, and when it's held together with a wooden joint, and when that wooden joint is made with an understanding of the nature of the wood, um, it just holds together beautifully. So using wood work wood, or uh, excuse me, so using hand tools is really about understanding the grain of the wood and working with it. Uh, so you, you mentioned driving, which is just a method of splitting wood, and you're attempting and trying to be a student of the piece of wood and listen to it and see where it wants to split. And then you can in some ways work with that and direct the split of wood so that you get the very strongest section that you possibly can. Um, Riving is a method that's used for really all of the traditional woodworking practices where you need to get ultima- ultimate strength, but also lightness and flexibility uh, for, for what, whatever it is that you're making. Uh, So the day that you were here, we were making uh, fence, uh, wooden fence parts, but I've also used riving to make many, many chair parts. Uh, Boyers or bow makers use it to make a bow. Uh, Shipbuilders, so the term riving actually goes back to Scandinavia, um, where the shipbuilders would use them to make these incredibly strong Viking vessels that could go across the ocean. So my point with all of that is you have to listen to the piece of wood and follow the nature of the wood. So you're literally following a growth ring down the stick of wood, whether it's what we would call like a straight line or not. You're following the growth that a tree put on in one given year. Mm. And that's what gives you the strongest, strongest piece of wood. Um, And maybe we can come back to this, but I I think that's such a metaphor, Jade, for how we need to listen to nature. Uh, For me, it's woodworking, but I know for the the incredible farmers in my life, it's listening to the grass, looking at the grass growing in the field, um, working with it. You know, my Mm. parents describe themselves as grass farmers,
0: um,
1: first and foremost. Um, And then as moving forward, it's listening to our ecosystem, listening to the wind, listening to the storms that are coming. Um, So for me, listening to a green piece of wood as I split it or as I push a sharp hand plane down the length of it, listening to the song that it's singing um, Mm. is how to work with nature, Mm. um, hopefully collaborate with nature,
0: um, Mm. rather than
1: sending it through a quick electric buzz saw that just cuts Mm. across those growth rings and is incredibly efficient. Yeah. But to me, not quite as meaningful or sustainable.
0: And even further afield, not just the way in which we integrate with the ecological system, but potentially with the societal system that we're part of as as well, more broadly, if we think we've got the courage to take that analogy and truly listen to it and apply what it's telling us.
1: Absolutely. Mm. Well said.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you drew, I've got a, the notes here and I was thinking at what point will I need to state the bleeding obvious, but you, of course, have drawn those conclusions yourself and that's the way in which you endeavour to live every day of your life. Um, I want to have a chat with you about something that surprised me actually and that's that you are going to be a TV star or or uh, <laughs> <be one. laughs> for someone who lives in such an... In- um intentionally paired back life you have said yes to the request to be on a television program and I'd love to know what it was that made you say yes to that
1: <laughs> I was afraid you'd ask that question <laughs> <laughs> um I'm still surprised that I mm. that I said yes um it came about I guess I'll back up it this came about because I I do write a blog um Unfortunately, lately I have not found the space in my life to, to write very often.
0: Um, what is the blog? And we'll pop it in the notes at the bottom. Okay,
1: it's uh, through Green Mountain Timber Frames. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the webpage, there's a link to the blog. So that blog has been a way for me just to try to share these incredible um, experiences that I've gotten to have with, with barns, restoring barns, seeing a barn come back to life and kind of enter a new phase and purpose in life. Um, so I was contacted by some folks who wanted to do a show about restoration. Um, and I was a, a, you know, I kind of had to do some research to find out what this was about. And, um, and yes, it's been a, it's been a really uh, wonderful experience. They have followed several of the restoration projects that we've we've done. So from start to finish. So from when, when we walk in and start cleaning out a barn, um, and then following us as we attempt to learn all we can about the uh, past generations built and lived in and worked in that barn. And then they, we follow it to see how the barn will be used moving forward. Mm. Um, so it's been, it's been a really good experience. Um, mm. I've met a lot of wonderful folks. And you know, uh, Jade, it's Sarah and I were talking recently. Um, agreeing to this and doing this has kind of, in a way, kept us honest. So I have these intentions always of researching the history of the barn and uh-huh. the community where the barn comes from, um, you know, and all of these these dreams of getting into teaching and sharing and collaboratively collaboratively learning with folks about woodworking. Um, and something is something really powerful about just having to to put it out there and kind of being mm. being kept honest. So I'm really grateful for, uh, mm. for how that's played out so far.
0: And it sort of feels like um, even though it's on a platform that you pr- probably, in fact, I know you don't buy into yourself, you don't actually have a television, um, okay. there's something about the fact that it's sort of keeping Vermont's built culture and skills culture alive through the sharing and what you talked about yes. before, which is that deep listening and and long, slow learning that is is really powerful and that it, you know, really we need to be incredibly grateful for you're happy to sort of step into a slightly different realm or onto a different platform that you wouldn't ordinarily play with for the sake of everybody else getting an understanding of what it is that you do and why. Yes.
1: Yeah, it has been really powerful in that way. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm getting responses from folks who I never, otherwise never would have had contact with um, and really many wonderful conversations coming out of it. Um, And that is one of my goals for this experience is to to promote uh, recycling and saving these Mm. buildings, but more importantly, keeping the stories alive. And Mm. I I hope that folks will kind of maybe step outside and see the old structure in their backyard that's starting to fall down and ask questions about the history of it and what that time period has to teach us for today.
0: Mm. Yeah, that is a beautiful way of saying it, ask questions about what that time period. Because I think um, in today's age, life is so fast and it's paced beyond our grandparents' imaginations that it's very easy for us to continue to hurtle at a pace that is beyond our human capabilities and um, what is is naturally um, replaceable or Recreated by our ecological systems around us, and actually, mm-hmm. if we take the time and the intention to slow a little and just listen to some of the wisdom of the past, then maybe it will change the way we interact today.
1: Yes, I, I, I agree completely mm-hmm. yeah and it's um I just had a really interesting conversation actually with a couple of my, my work colleagues and the topic of conversation was the pluses and minuses of having this incredible um data system at our fingertips um so we can you know push a button on a phone and, and ask you know what does the word writhing mean yes. and boom we okay. have
0: there it is we have
1: a lot of information there and it's really good information mm. however i it's so important to me that that doesn't replace the face-to-face interactions and generation to generation interactions mm. so what's dangerously low right now is the the um the level of knowledge traditional knowledge that gets shared um you know there used to be in my trade in woodworking there used to be something called an apprenticeship so you would go and work with a master craftsman for years Mm. to learn you know and usually the your first the first step was to craft your own toolbox and uh to do that all with hand tools—that's a serious undertaking. Yeah, and what an investment from the very beginning of a career. That's just a large investment to make in learning the basic skills from from a teacher, usually an older teacher. Mm. Um, so part of the mission here at Green Mountain Timber Frames, sort of beyond keeping a lot of barns standing and living—literally living—and
0: telling their stories.
1: Um, right. We also are trying and working towards creating a space for teaching for collaborative learning um so we were so fortunate about just two years ago this month actually to restore and re-erect a barn from the 1780s um and in that barn we have one section set up as hand hand tool woodworking space uh no power tools in there (laughs) and then the rest of the space we're starting to have have music nights um talks we're so grateful for you to come and, Mm -hmm. and uh and use that space. And part of our hope is that we can facilitate um, elders, people in the community who, are, who have a skill that we all should know, or at least mm-hmm. have a taste of, have to come health and health use health. this space. Right, and it's, you know, uh, I know that I will never be a wonderful basket weaver, um, but I want so badly to sit mm-hmm. for whether it's a day, a weekend, or a week, with someone who understands the nature of wild reeds or the ash wood when it's harvested at the right time of the year and treated in a certain way to make it uh, to make it collaborate with us to, for an incredible basket. Um, I want to, to. I'm I'm greedy for a little bit of an understanding, a taste of what that is. Um, you know, the same with we're. I'm very excited. We're putting up a blacksmith shop. We're moving. An old blacksmith shop to our location this coming year, um, and we will put it up as a traditional blacksmith shop that we can use. And uh, my my son in particular has quite wonderful ambitions to be a master blacksmith. Uh, my the height of my ambition is just to learn how to make one nail. <laughs> I mean, I've pulled she thousands. <laughs> right, right. I've pulled thousands and thousands of these just beautifully crafted hand forged um, rosehead nails from barns. And I save as many as I can. And they're just, it's amazing to me to hold one of these nails and think about the hand that forged it
0: mm.
1: 200 or more years ago, you know,
0: I literally. What were you using to form your vegetable garden fence?
1: We were using locust wood and a, the tool was a fro okay. and a riving break. Yeah. And that was a hand, that's right. That was a hand, an old hand forged.
0: Uh, yes. I grow. thought so. yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um,
0: I mean, they just, it's just a way of thinking and a way of functioning that so few people seem to have the patience for, even if they have the inclination or the romantic notion for it. So few people have the courageousness to actually do it. And you've done that. And I feel like being in your space that you're creating with Sarah is um, such a beautiful reminder. It's a gentle reminder. It's not being sort of thrust upon us, but it's a reminder that there is another way and that it's incredibly nurturing and nourishing and that it is um, equally as rewarding, albeit not nearly as glossy and shiny and convenient as maybe the other way that the vast majority of us are lured towards living as. And I just, has that been intentional? Have you looked at it and thought, well, it's not our nature to be overt in passing on lessons or, or ideology as to how people could and should live. But if we live this way and we live it well, other people may well see it, see that there's joy in it. And it kind of speaks to a deeper yearning. I know when I was there, I thought, wow, we have got so far to go like you guys are just so much further ahead in truly listening to what it is that you you need and your community needs and your children need and your confidence and comfortableness to push back on you know all the outward facing messages that get thrust on us Mm,
1: thank you you're very kind um I guess I want to say we're we're just students. We're just just trying to learn ourselves. Um, and you ask if it's intentional. I'm. We are pursuing a lifestyle that's just so attractive. I can't get real. Um, you know, I happen to to be in love with a lifestyle mm-hmm. that I'm trying to work towards. That really just gives me great joy, more joy than if I was trying to pursue it faster. I suppose Um, and I just have we have such incredible teachers around us Uh, we have neighbors who will walk over and um, you know even even you the night that you were here this is our first year doing a large-ish crop of garlic and Jade you walked in there and we learned from you about how to know if it was time to harvest our garlic and there's so many things that I know I was around that as a kid I know that my mom taught me when to harvest garlic and now, you know, 30, 25, 30 years has gone past. It's coming back. And I need refreshers from, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. from, from, from all the, these wonderful
1: people around us. From the
0: encyclopedia of your community.
1: Exactly. Well said. And that's, um, that's what's been amazing, Jade. You asked about intentionality. Um, and Sarah and I have, in a way, just kind of taken some leaps, put some intentions out there into the world. Um, and it's just incredible how the universe and our neighbors and friends and mostly family just are there, are there mm. for us, and, uh, mm. and it's just really exciting to see it kind of coming together in a, in a beautiful way.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's a different frame, isn't it? Because there's no lone wolf in the equation that you're talking Ex- about. It's exactly. that reciprocity that comes from that that deep and intentional connection to place to yeah. people and to the thing that is bigger than all of us which yes. kind of holds us a bit um blindly but if we have faith in it then it, it sort of comes to fruition when we need it
1: right right mm. you know jade the, the um i talk a lot about the stories literally embedded in the barns that i'm honored to work on um and those stories go back they just go back so far. Um, I want to tell you about an experience I had. It was actually the night of the barn raising where, where we, we put up our own 1780s barn that we were so lucky to, to get to enjoy every day. So it was the day of the barn raising. It had been a, a busy, wonderful, exciting day where we had a large number of the community here to, to put these beams up in the air back the way they were standing over 200 years ago. Um, and We had a wonderful potluck dinner and just a celebration. And later that night, I was actually—I remember it so clear—the moon was up and I was, it was getting quiet. And I—I was—I'd gotten out my violin and I was standing inside the barn, just kind of walking around and just fiddling around a little bit. And you know, not to get too dramatic about it, but I also—it also it all of a hit me that these trees, which were turned into a barn around 1780, at that time, some of these trees were already 200 years old. Um, So, first of all, first thing that I was already aware of, you know, these trees were living in the 1600s. Recently, I I restored a barn where I know that the the barn was built pre-1800, and one, one of the trees was over 300 years old, and it was an oak tree. Um, So as I was leaning on these posts of my own, the barn I get to enjoy, and playing my violin, it dawned on me that these trees were cared for long before 1780, when the barn was built. So the the first peoples here were treating and viewing these trees as members of the community that they collaborated with. And it was struck me that, um, you know, these oak trees were feeding animals and people and being cared for long before they were, were cut down and turned into a barn. So I want to just make sure that I'm acknowledging and how grateful I am that these incredible forests, um, well, just how grateful I am that, that I get to enjoy these, these beams built out of those trees and Um, that I want to learn more about how those trees were part of a community before Mm. my people arrived.
0: Mm. Um, It's a deep knowing. So I just
1: want to honour that and I want to learn more.
0: I feel like you have a deep knowing that um, you're patient enough to listen to when most of us just don't. We either don't have that intuition that's speaking loudly enough or we don't have the patience to listen to it.
1: Mm. I'm I'm grateful to, to be around these mighty trees from yeah. 100 years ago.
0: Do you think that um, you spoke earlier ab- about, you know, the blatant reality that <clears throat> your language is wood and that that has given you the ability to read the natural world? It, you know, it's given you a connection to country and you're then reading country through trees. Does it, does it also translate that... Um, you know, it gives you the confidence to really listen to your observations on all other things in the natural world and respond to it? Or do you feel like you've been so attuned to trees that that is your language?
1: Hmm. Wow, that's a fascinating question. Um. I have a a curiosity about listening to to uh, more more than just the trees um, i I don't feel that I'm particularly gifted in other ways of of listening or knowing. Um, wow, well, I'm gonna have to think about that question for a while.
0: Just to spur the curiosity in in other directions. You also said earlier that um, you like to build rituals around your year. And we talk a lot about ritual in future studying because I I think, and for those who are long-time listeners, they will have heard me say a number of times that I believe that ritual has the, the capacity to replace Um, The modern day sort of empty vacuousness that has come through consumption, endless and largely mindless consumption and that ritual replaces a deep-seated need for belonging and connection and acknowledgement of the things that are larger than us. And sometimes ritual can be ever so tiny but it becomes powerful when it's repeated or powerful when you attach meaning to it. I'm curious to know if you have any rituals that um, are an example of something that's really small but really powerful. Yeah.
1: Well, within, within the world of timber framing, um, we have certain rituals that we do every time that we uh, put a barn back up. So when we have a barn raising, uh, which is mm-hmm. this incredible moment, mm-hmm. day that comes after sometimes months of preparation, oh. You know, we'll we'll take down a barn and that can be a week to several weeks process. And then we wash, we carefully washed all the beams, every board. We make repairs, replacements, which is often up to a month's worth of work. And then we arrive at the new site. Sometimes it's the original site, but usually a new site where we're about to erect this barn. Uh, And I was fortunate to learn from my mentor and teacher to um, pause with, everyone who's there, which is my team um, and often many community members. And we get in a circle and we take a few moments just to be grateful Mm -hmm. for the day, for these mighty trees and for the shelter that they've provided Mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. Um, And then a part of that raising day morning ritual is also to remind each other that timber frames are not put up alone. Yes. That's one of the things I love about a timber frame. Yes. You know, a lone individual can use two by fours and, and build a structure alone. Uh, with timber frame, even with some of the modern machinery that we do use, it really does take a team. You need help to put this structure up. Yes. So we take a moment in that morning ritual to remind each other to listen to each other yeah. and to watch out for each other's safety. So that's the first ritual of a barn raising. Um, at the end of the day, typically, uh, if everything goes smoothly, we'll have the rafters back on the building. So the the structure is standing true and tall again. And we follow an ancient tradition, which is to find an evergreen bough, mm-hmm. which we cut and we place it up on the peak of the building, uh, right up right up in the rafters. Uh, And that tradition goes back millennia as a token of gratitude for the trees that provided the materials for this barn and as a blessing on the future of the structure. Uh, And then typically we have some music and some kind of a a wonderful meal together in the barn. So those are rituals that are specific to a barn raising that I just, I love. I I mean,
0: that could be translated to every day, couldn't they? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And then there's another a ritual uh, with woodworking that I try to do, which is around the winter solstice, sort of the dark, quieter time of the year, where I try to spend time reflecting. I try to take take my hand tools out, many of them are antiques, and clean them, sharpen yeah. them, do that maintenance that it's so easy to, to keep <laughs> pushing back further and further in the rush of the day-to-day busyness mm. um, so it's around that dark quiet time of the year that i try to very often in front of a wood stove
0: uh, and they're the tools of your tools. trade you know they keep your they whole trade alive and functioning so honoring them and giving them that lick of oil that they have longed for all year makes sense
1: yeah exactly and you know we do um we do use power tools in our work as well mm-hmm. but it's these old hand tools the old hand planes the old chisels that uh, generations of of craftspeople have used, like literally held that handle Mm -hmm. and shaped timbers. And I like to spend some time with that and reflecting on the the stories that these hand tools tell as well.
0: I have my grandfather's um, handmade plane, handmade level, and also quite a lot of his ferreting nets at home. And sadly, I never had the chance to ask him where and how they came about, but my brother... When my grandfather died, my brother took some of his tools and he said, I think it's only fair that we both have some. And so I, like you, am going to use that time in the deep winter to just bring them out and give them a lick of oil and, and honour him yeah, if I can't even yeah. recall the stories, but at least honour him. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful. really beautiful ritual. We talk a lot in Future Studying as well about... Enough, and I have walked your beautiful barn and your property and I've met your family and your wife and glorious kids and I can see very clearly that it's apparent that enough for you does not equate to stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. Your very intentional and pared-back way of existing, even your drop toilet is beyond breathtakingly beautiful. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I know having spent some time with you that, enough for you looks quite different. But I would love to hear in your words what enough actually is.
1: Hmm. Uh, well, I ag- agree with you completely that we've had this uh, a, a paradigm of ever-increasing, uh, you know, product, gross domestic mm. product. And um, we have an economy that's just built on the assumption that there's <laughs> That everything has to continue growing. And I think we all are kind of seeing that that's, that's not the way to move forward mm. positively. So, for me, enough, um, it's about the relationships that, um,
0: mm. that I
1: try to foster and certainly have need to keep improving. But it's about relationships with, with family, neighbors, um, the community. Um, and for me, I guess personally, aesthetics, simple aesthetics. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where, again, I'm just so lucky to get to go and look at these old structures, old corn cribs, where cross people put an incredible amount of time and effort into really minor aesthetic details. Mm-hmm. Um, there was nothing particularly efficient like in the corn crib that we get to live in sometimes. There was nothing efficient about doing this beautiful handmade molding yes. up on the bottom of the roof um so I like to ask you know why why did they take the time mm. they were at least as busy as us right <laughs> yeah. Doing yeah they didn't have the convenience fu- of you know, modern exactly, day yeah, yeah exactly they had to put up all their own food or as a community put up their own food um and yet they took time for these just aesthetic touches um, mm. so that's where I get incredible joy and satisfaction is, is observing these. And then every once in a while, if I have a, if I get one right and I'm really happy with a simple aesthetic choice, um, I just make a great, a silly amount of joy from that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then for me also, um, gardening. So I'm, I'm just a student of gardening, trying to, to learn, but, uh, and yeah. trying to find the time to really put in. Mm. But that is one of the things that gives me great joy.
0: Mm. Are you unlearning anything or do you feel like the alternative childhood, the endless support of your large and close family and your sort of deep understanding of your place in your Vermont community has meant that you have a really a strong foundation of who you are and what it is you're trying to achieve? Or do you feel like along the way there has had to be an active unlearning or an unpicking of a paradigm or a direction.
1: Hmm. Uh, I'm so grateful for the for the foundation that mm. I've been given by my my family, and my community. Um, so grateful for my my grandfather letting me lean on his workbench and watch him. <laughs> um, there, it's always, of course, a constant struggle to balance sort of ambition and. You know, for me a large part of it is how big to let yes how big to get as a as a team as a business um, and then trying to figure out the balance between a business that's supporting a number of families and mm-hmm. you know needs to support us and it's, it is a business and trying to balance that with giving back to the community
0: yeah.
1: um, So one thing I'm trying to learn is the balance between, we we have this right now separation that a business is just about profit and if you want to do good things for your your people then you've created a non-profit it's literally called that yeah i'd sure like to see that um that muddled yeah Um, and i think that is happening i really think it is around the world that
0: uh, yeah there's a demand for it
1: that businesses are shifting of course it's always been that way pre -pre pre-industrialization um there wasn't this thing called a business that was completely separate from community life. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you ask about what I need to unlearn, um, that's something I'm, I'm trying to understand more and find mm-hmm. a balance between restoring and, and selling and putting these barns up oh, in a way that supports several families, but also as a business giving back. Um, we've just recently had the incredible opportunity to have 65 lo- local School kids oh, yeah. here at the shop, and it's maybe the highlight of my career so far. It's just so much fun to, uh, as a team, be coaching these kids, learning with these kids on using the hand tools and listening to the, to the nature of the wood yeah. we are working with.
0: And also the nature of the children. I, I, yes. Are you saying, you know, there was one who just didn't want to be there, but by the end of the week he was, or was it a little girl? She was ready to build yeah. a, a barn just like that in her own backyard.
1: Yep. Yep. Literally, she, you know, at first she did not expect to enjoy this week. They were at all at our shop in, in groups of about twenty, and uh, we went up in the woods and to look at trees and where beams come from. And we actually, I gave a demonstration of, of hewing from a log into a squared beam. And I remember this this one student saying, "Well, I guess if I have to take a turn, I'll just get it over with <laughs>
0: quickly."
1: Not expect to enjoy this, um, and. And by the end of the week, she was one of the most engaged students. And oh, wow. uh, it was the last thing that she said to Sarah and I was, I'm going to try to persuade persuade my dad to help me build a treehouse this summer.
0: Uh, oh, I love it. It's just so, so, a scene so wonderful. That may just direct, change the direction of yeah, her life. You never know. Oh, I look, was amazed,
1: been... uh, uh, Jade, when, when these students would get on a shaving horse, which is a really simple workbench that, that you use a draw knife. And it creaks and it groans as all these noises as the wooden parts of the bench kind of hold whatever it is that you're shaving. And I would encourage the students to literally listen
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: and feel the wood as it as it was sliced. Um, And it was just amazing how much how centering that was for some Mm -hmm. of the students. Um, And I can just relate that back to myself. And Mm -hmm. if I'm feeling flustered or overwrought, I'll get out a hand plane or a shaving Knife and actually just just go make wood shavings.
0: Yeah, and, uh, try whitt- to <laughs>
1: learn from the tree and just just listen and calm down.
0: Yeah, and whittling I imagine is much the same. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cathartic outdoors,
1: right, right.
0: Being led by something else that speaks exactly. a language, but not necessarily the spoken language.
1: Right, right.
0: I don't know if you heard that bell go a moment ago, but that in our world here at camp um, represents noise and chaos as testosterone (laughs) at all ages spews from the the, um, cabins. And so we're about to get beaten in terms of our our quiet background. Um, I'm so glad we've had the chance to have this conversation with the big red record button behind us. And um, I hope that as you... Continue on your merry journey of trying to work out how to navigate that endless growth push with um, creating businesses with intention that we can keep in touch and we can keep sharing what it is that we both learn as we both do something similar on opposite sides of the world, you with wood and us with food. And I feel like uh, friendships can span um, great distances when there is similar intention and and similar values and i feel really strongly that we've got those and i'm delighted to now have you in my life
1: oh thank you jade likewise i look forward to staying in touch
0: as always future status thank you for popping both luke and i in your ears this week i have just re-listened to that as i've done the edit uh, about six or eight weeks after it was recorded and I feel really peaceful and for the first time in a long time at home, we've got the sun shining and I don't know about you, but if the sun's shining when it's been raining, I think it's time to go outside and listen to what that's telling us. So I'm heading out there. I just want to send a huge thanks. We've just hit our 100 episode mark and I've had so much incredible uh, supportive feedback and notes and comments in all the various Platforms that I just want to say thank you for taking the time to reach out and um, let us know how much the pod and the broader pod community means to you. Of course, I also want to thank our pod partners because we can't uh, actually do it without them. If you would like to support the show, you feel like it's adding something worthwhile to your life, then we have two ways that you can do that. You can join the myriad of other individuals who shout us a coffee it's called uh, buy me a coffee and it's in the pod notes and if you think that maybe an easier approach would be to do it monthly then we have a patreon subscription too that's also in the show notes hopefully this sunshine will stay for a little bit longer here where i am and that it is shining on you gently wherever you are in this beautiful spring for us here in australia and autumn or fall for, for those on the other side of the world Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a fortnight.